Chapter fifty one, part seven of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, volume five, chapter fifty one, part seven. I should deceive the expectation of the reader if I passed in silence the fate of the Alexandrian library as it is described by the learned Abul Faragius. The spirit of Amru was more curious and liberal than that of his brethren, and in his leisure hours the Arabian chief was pleased with the conversation of John, the last disciple of Ammonius, who derived the surname of Philoponus from his laborious studies of grammar and philosophy. Emboldened by this familiar intercourse, Philoponus presumed to solicit a gift, inestimable in his opinion, contemptible in that of the barbarians, the royal library, which alone among the spoils of Alexandria had not been appropriated by the visit and the seal of the conqueror. Amru was inclined to gratify the wish of the grammarian, but his rigid integrity refused to alienate the minutest object without the consent of the caliph, and the well-known answer of Omar was inspired by the ignorance of a fanatic. If these writings of the Greeks agree with the book of God, they are useless, and need not be preserved. If they disagree, they are pernicious, and ought to be destroyed. The sentence was executed with blind obedience. The volumes of paper or parchment were distributed to the four thousand baths of the city, and such was their incredible multitude, that six months were barely sufficient for the consumption of this precious fuel. Since the dynasties of Abul Faragius have been given to the world in a Latin verse, the tale has been repeatedly transcribed, and every scholar, with pious indignation, has deplored the irreparable shipwreck of the learning, the arts, and the genius of antiquity. For my own part, I am strongly tempted to deny both the fact and the consequences. The fact is indeed marvellous. Read and wonder, says the historian himself, and the solitary report of a stranger who wrote at the end of six hundred years on the confines of Medea is overbalanced by the silence of two analysts of a more early date, both Christians, both natives of Egypt, and the most ancient of whom, the patriarch Eutychius, has amply described the conquest of Alexandria. The rigid sentence of Omar is repugnant to the sound and orthodox precept of the Mohammedan Kazius, they expressly declare, that the religious books of the Jews and Christians, which are acquired by the right of war, should never be committed to the flames, and that the works of profane science, historians or poets, physicians or philosophers, may be lawfully applied to the use of the faithful. A more destructive zeal may perhaps be attributed to the first successors of Mohammed, yet in this instance the conflagration would have speedily expired in the deficiency of materials. I should not recapitulate the disasters of the Alexandrian library, the involuntary flame that was kindled by Caesar in his own defence, or the mischievous bigotry of the Christians, who studied to destroy the monuments of idolatry. But if we gradually descend from the age of the Antonines to that of Theodosius, we shall learn from a chain of contemporary witnesses that the royal palace and the temple of Serapis no longer contained the four or the seven hundred thousand volumes which had been assembled by the curiosity and magnificence of the Ptolemies. Perhaps the church and seat of the patriarchs might be enriched with a repository of books, but if the ponderous mass of Arian and Monophysite controversy were indeed consumed in the public baths, a philosopher may allow, with a smile, that it was ultimately devoted to the benefit of mankind. I sincerely regret the more valuable libraries which have been involved in the ruin of the Roman Empire, 
but when I seriously compute the lapse of ages, the waste of ignorance, and the calamities of war, our treasures, rather than our losses, are the objects of my surprise. Many curious and interesting facts are buried in oblivion. The three great historians of Rome have been transmitted to our hands in a mutilated state, and we are deprived of many pleasing compositions of the lyric, iambic, and dramatic poetry of the Greeks. Yet we should gratefully remember that the mischances of time and accident have spared the classic works to which the suffrage of antiquity had adjudged the first place of genius and glory. The teachers of ancient knowledge, who are still extant, had perused and compared the writings of their predecessors. Nor can it fairly be presumed that any important truth, any useful discovery in art or nature, has been snatched away from the curiosity of modern ages. In the administration of Egypt, Amru balanced the demands of justice and policy, the interests of the people of the law, who were defended by God, and of the people of the alliance, who were protected by man. In the recent tumult of conquest and deliverance, the tongue of the Copts and the sword of the Arabs were most adverse to the tranquillity of the province. To the former, Amru declared that faction and falsehood would be doubly chastised, by the punishment of the accusers, whom he should detest as his personal enemies, and by the promotion of their innocent brethren, whom their envy had laboured to injure and supplant. He excited the latter by the motives of religion and honour to sustain the dignity of their character, to endear themselves by a modest and temperate conduct to God and the Caliph, to spare and protect a people who had trusted to their faith, and to content themselves with the legitimate and splendid rewards of their victory. In the management of the revenue, he disapproved the simple but oppressive mode of a capitulation, and preferred with reason a proportion of taxes deducted on every branch from the clear profits of agriculture and commerce. A third part of the tribute was appropriated to the annual repairs of the dikes and canals, so essential to the public welfare. Under his administration the fertility of Egypt supplied the dearth of Arabia, and a string of camels, laden with corn and provisions, covered almost without an interval the long road from Memphis to Medina. But the genius of Amru soon renewed the maritime communication which had been attempted or achieved by the Pharaohs, the Ptolemies, or the Caesars, and a canal, at least eighty miles in length, was opened from the Nile to the Red Sea. This inland navigation, which would have joined the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, was soon discontinued as useless and dangerous, the throne was removed from Medina to Damascus, and the Grecian fleets might have explored a passage to the holy cities of Arabia. Of his new conquest, the Caliph Omar had an imperfect knowledge from the voice of fame and the legends of the Koran. He requested that his lieutenant would place before his eyes the realm of Pharaoh and the Amalekites, and the answer of Amru exhibits a lively and not unfaithful picture of that singular country. O commander of the faithful! Egypt is a compound of black earth and green plants, between a pulverized mountain and a red sand. The distance from Syene to the sea is the month's journey for a horseman. Along the valley descends a river, on which the blessing of the Most High reposes both in the evening and morning, and which rises and falls with the revolutions of the sun and moon. When the annual dispensation of Providence unlocks the springs and fountains that nourish the earth, the Nile rolls his swelling and sounding waters through the realm of Egypt, the fields are overspread by the salutary flood, and the villages communicate with each other in their painted barks. The retreat of the inundation deposits a fertilizing mud for the reception of the various seeds. The crowds of husbandmen who blacken the land may be compared to a swarm of industrious ants, and their native indolence is quickened by the lash of the taskmaster, 
and the promise of the flowers and fruits of a plentiful increase. Their hope is seldom deceived, but the riches which they extract from the wheat, the barley, and the rice, the legumes, the fruit-trees, and the cattle, are unequally shared between those who labor and those who possess. According to the vicissitudes of the seasons, the face of the country is adorned with a silver wave, a verdant emerald, and the deep yellow of a golden harvest. Yet this beneficial order is sometimes interrupted, and the long delay and sudden swell of the river in the first year of the conquest might afford some colour to an edifying fable. It is said that the annual sacrifice of a virgin had been interdicted by the piety of Omar, and that the Nile lay sullen and inactive in his shallow bed, till the mandate of the caliph was cast into the obedient stream, which rose in a single night to the height of sixteen cubits. The admiration of the Arabs for their new conquest encouraged the license of their romantic spirit. We may read, in the gravest authors, that Egypt was crowded with twenty thousand cities or villages, that exclusive of the Greeks and Arabs, the Copts alone were found, on the assessment, six millions of tributary subjects, or twenty millions of either sex, and of every age, that three hundred millions of gold and silver were annually paid to the treasury of the caliphs. Our reason must be startled by these extravagant assertions, and they will become more palpable if we assume the compass and measure of the extent of habitable ground, a valley from the tropic to Memphis seldom broader than twelve miles, and the triangle of the delta, a flat surface of two thousand one hundred square leagues, compose a twelfth part of the magnitude of France. A more accurate research will justify a more reasonable estimate. The three hundred millions, created by the era of a scribe, are reduced to the decent revenue of four millions three hundred thousand pieces of gold, of which nine hundred thousand were consumed by the pay of the soldiers. Two authentic lists, of the present and of the twelfth century, are circumscribed within the respectable number of two thousand seven hundred villages and towns. After a long residence at Cairo, a French council has ventured to assign about four millions of Mohammedans, Christians, and Jews, for the ample, though not incredible, scope of the population of Egypt. The conquest of Africa, from the Nile to the Atlantic Ocean, was first attempted by the arms of the Caliph Othman. The pious design was approved by the companions of Mohammed and the chiefs of the tribes, and twenty thousand Arabs marched from Medina, with gifts and the blessings of the commander of the faithful. They were joined in the camp of Memphis by twenty thousand of their countrymen, and the conduct of the war was entrusted to Abdullah, the son of Said and the foster-brother of the Caliph, who had lately supplanted the conqueror and lieutenant of Egypt. Yet the favour of the prince, and the merit of his favourite, could not obliterate the guilt of his apostasy. The early conversion of Abdullah, and his skilful pen, had recommended him to the important office of transcribing the sheets of the Koran. He betrayed his trust, corrupted the text, derided the errors which he had made, and fled to Mecca to escape the justice, and expose the ignorance of the apostle. After the conquest of Mecca, he fell prostrate at the feet of Mohammed. His tears and the entreaties of Othman extorted a reluctant pardon, but the prophet declared that he had so long hesitated to allow time for some zealous disciple to avenge his injury in the blood of the apostate. With apparent fidelity and effective merit, he served the religion which it was no longer his interest to desert. His birth and talents gave him an honourable rank among the Koreish, and in a nation of cavalry Abdullah was renowned as the boldest and most dexterous horseman of Arabia. At the head of forty thousand Muslims, he advanced from Egypt into the unknown countries of the West. The sands of Barca might be impervious to a Roman legion, but the Arabs were attended by their faithful camels, 
and the natives of the desert beheld without terror the familiar aspect of the soil and climate. After a painful march, they pitched their tents before the walls of Tripoli, a maritime city in which the name, the wealth, and the inhabitants of the province had gradually centred, and which now maintains the third rank among the states of Barbary. A reinforcement of Greeks was surprised and cut in pieces on the seashore, but the fortifications of Tripoli resisted the first assaults, and the Saracens were tempted by the approach of the prefect Gregory to relinquish the labours of the siege for the perils and the hopes of a decisive action. If his standard was followed by one hundred and twenty thousand men, the regular bands of the empire must have been lost in the naked and disorderly crowd of Africans and Moors, who formed the strength, or rather the numbers, of his host. He rejected with indignation the option of the Koran or the tribute, and during several days the two armies were fiercely engaged from the dawn of light to the hour of noon, when their fatigue and the excessive heat compelled them to seek shelter and refreshment in their respective camps. The daughter of Gregory, a maid of incomparable beauty and spirit, is said to have fought by his side. From her earliest youth she was trained to mount on horseback, to draw the bow, and to wield the scimitar, and the richness of her arms and apparel were conspicuous in the foremost ranks of the battle. Her hand, with a hundred thousand pieces of gold, was offered for the head of the Arabian general, and the youths of Africa were excited by the prospect of the glorious prize. At the pressing solicitation of his brethren, Abdullah withdrew his person from the field, but the Saracens were discouraged by the retreat of their leader, and the repetition of those equal or unsuccessful conflicts. A noble Arabian, who afterwards became the adversary of Ali, and the father of a caliph, had signalized his valour in Egypt, and Zobir was the first who planted the scaling ladder against the walls of Babylon. In the African war he was detached from the standard of Abdullah. In the news of the battle, Zobir, with twelve companions, cut his way through the camp of the Greeks, and pressed forwards, without tasting either food or repose, to partake of the danger of his brethren. He cast his eyes round the field. Where, said he, is our general? In his tent. Is the tent a station for the general of the Muslims? Abdullah represented with a blush the importance of his own life, and the temptation that was held forth by the Roman prefect. "'Retort,' said Zobir, "'on the infidels and their ungenerous attempt. "'Proclaim through the ranks that the head of Gregory "'shall be repaid with his captive daughter, "'and the equal sum of one hundred thousand pieces of gold.' "'To the courage and discretion of Zobir, "'the lieutenant of the caliph entrusted "'the execution of his own stratagem, "'which included the long-disputed balance "'in favour of the Saracens. "'Supplying by activity and artifice "'the deficiency of numbers, "'a part of their forces lay concealed in their tents,' while the remainder prolonged an irregular skirmish with the enemy, till the sun was high in the heavens. On both sides they retired with fainting steps. Their horses were unbridled, their armour was laid aside, and the hostile nations prepared, or seemed to prepare, for the refreshment of the evening, and the encounter of the ensuing day. On a sudden the charge was sounded, the Arabian camp poured forth a swarm of fresh and intrepid warriors, and the long line of the Greeks and Africans was surprised, assaulted, overturned, by new squadrons of the faithful, who, to the eye of fanaticism, might appear as a band of angels descending from the sky. The prefect himself was slain by the hand of Zobir. His daughter, who sought revenge and death, was surrounded and made prisoner, and the fugitives involved in their disaster the town of Sufatella, to which they escaped from the sabres and lances of the Arabs. Sufatella was built one hundred and fifty miles to the south of Carthage, a gentle declivity is watered by a running stream, and shaded by a grove of juniper-trees, 
and in the ruins of a triumphal arch, a portico, and three temples of the Corinthian order, curiosity may yet admire the magnificence of the Romans. After the fall of this opulent city, the provincials and barbarians implored on all sides the mercy of the conqueror. His vanity or his zeal might be flattered by offers of tribute or professions of faith, but his losses, his fatigues, and the progress of an epidemical disease prevented a solid establishment, and the Saracens, after a campaign of fifteen months, retreated to the confines of Egypt, with the captives and the wealth of their African expedition. The caliph's fifth was granted to a favourite, on the nominal pavement of five hundred thousand pieces of gold, but the state was doubly injured by this fallacious transaction. If each foot-soldier had shared one thousand, and each horseman three thousand pieces, in the real division of the plunder, the author of the death of Gregory was expected to have claimed the most precious reward of the victory. From his silence it might be presumed that he had fallen in the battle, till the tears and exclamations of the prefect's daughter at the sight of Zobir revealed the valour and modesty of that gallant soldier. The unfortunate virgin was offered, and almost rejected as a slave, by her father's murderer, who coolly declared that his sword was consecrated to the service of religion, and that he laboured for a recompense far above the charms of mortal beauty, or the riches of this transitory life. A reward congenial to his temper was the honourable commission of announcing to the Caliph Othman the success of his arms. The companions, the chiefs, and the people were assembled in the mosque of Medina, to hear the interesting narrative of Zobir, and as the orator forgot nothing except the merit of his own counsels and actions, the name of Abdullah was joined by the Arabians, with the heroic names of Khalid and Amro. End of chapter 51, part 7